Genesis chapter 4. This is kind of still an introduction in a way because we just started Ephesians chapter 4 last week, and that was after a couple weeks break because of uh, some of the holidays. And then that's also in light of the fact that we've seen that Ephesians, by most anybody's standards or measurement, is kind of two different books in one. It was all written by Paul, all written at the same time, but they're very clear halves. So it looked something like this from last week, if I were to reduce it down. The first three chapters have to do with doctrine. The second three chapters have to do with application and duty. So it starts with what God has done, and then Paul turns the corner into what we should do in light of what God has done. I showed you last week that in the first three chapters, Paul only gives one command to the reader, one command to the church, one command to Christians, only one thing to remember. But in the second three chapters, there are 39 different commands. In many cases, I suppose they overlap. They're in quick succession, but there's 39 things that he tells Christians or the church to do now that he's established a basis for it in those first three chapters. So there's a wonderful balance between the two where no matter which you may prefer, the doctrinal side or the application side, both in fact are necessary if you want the whole picture. And if I weight it too much on one side or the other, I'm going to be doing maybe the right things, but for the wrong reasons, or with a lack of appreciation, or I won't even be doing the right things. Both sides are necessary for the Christian to be well-grounded and then to move forward into obedience, how Christ would have us to live. Chapter 4 and verse 1 starts off with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want to start off by clarifying two possible misconceptions as to what Paul is uh, requiring of the church in his greeting in chapter 4 and verse 1. The first one, I realized I was going to do this, but I still like, there's only only so many bulletin covers you can use that fit... uh, a given passage on a given Sunday, but our bulletin cover looks like this, and it kind of has the impression, or it's communicating a message which is true, that no matter what your vocation is in life, no matter what you're calling, on the bulletin cover you've got blue collar, you've got white collar, uh, I'll take that as a homemaker, a, a mother, and a, a wife and a mother, uh, homemaking at home, you've got a, a a educator, you've got a farmer, no matter what your vocation is, you should do it in such a way that you, you reflect your values as a Christian. You're a Christian in whatever God has called you to. That's true. That's entirely true. And it needs to be said. And it is said at different places in Scripture. But when Paul uses those words, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to which you have been called, he's not talking about our separate vocations. The way we live our lives from nine to five through most of the week. He's not talking about how we're different in so many different ways. He's writing to the church and he's calling to mind the one way in which we're all alike. So when he refers to the calling, the calling is in reference to God's calling persons to salvation in Christ. All Christians, regardless of their vocation, 
have been called to salvation in Christ by God's Holy Spirit. And we are to live a certain way. We are to walk a certain way. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. There's lots of authors that bring out this point, but I want to bring up N.T. Wright, who's kind of controversial. Uh, but by any standard, N.T. Wright is a new te- well, he's a scholar of the Bible. He's a good guy. He's from uh, in the Anglican Church in England. But N.T. Wright was part of a, a movement that got aspects of the of uh, what Christ did when he died on the cross wrong. It's called the New Perspective of Paul. And I think it's been demonstrated that his view, along with some others, was wrong about what Paul talked about justification by faith and by grace. So he was wrong on that. But N.T. Wright, he's not a heretic. He's, he's not somebody outside of the kingdom of God so much as that can be measured by the likes of me or anybody else. So he's a good guy. And N.T. Wright in his writing on Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, states it this way. Paul is referring to the even more basic calling of the gospel itself, summoning people to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and King and to give him complete and undivided allegiance for the rest of their lives. And in that, he's exactly right. The calling of verse 1 is calling uh, the church calling believers to walk in obedience to Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. So that's the first possible misconception from verse 1. Then, Well, actually, here's a scriptural background for that. I forgot I put this in there. Here's one example of how the Bible uses the word called to salvation, not simply to a vocation. Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter's talking about is what Paul is talking about. You've been called out of darkness, out of a kingdom uh, of Satan, into his marvelous light, into the kingdom of his own dearly beloved son, uh, a term that's used in Colossians. That's what you've been called out of and to now live like it. Peter would say the same thing as what Paul says. Now, secondly, that word therefore is kind of a, it's the hinge between the two halves of Ephesians, between the doctrinal half, which he starts with, and then the duty or the conduct that should be reflected by what he's already said. The hinge pin there is that word therefore, which I drew some attention to last week. But because... At the end of the day, I didn't get nearly as far last week as I first imagined, say, on a Wednesday uh, before last Sunday. Uh, it gave me a chance to read a lot of other books. You know, I've got, I've got more books than I can read on, on any passage of, of the Bible. I just don't have that much time. So I started reading another set of books, and I found a set of books that really said so many good things. I thought, that's, I'm going to give you a fairly extended quote as to what uh, this commentator says, partly regarding that word therefore, but also kind of setting up the two halves of Ephesians. And part of the amazing part is that this was written in 1953, which on one hand, I I almost want to say the older it is, probably the better it is, uh, the more doctrinal it is, or the less it's influenced by 
cultural influences today that tend to uh, shed poor light on scripture. So it's written in 1953, but it came from what I typically would consider not a very good source. And there's kind of a story behind it. So it's called the Interpreter's Bible. It's a set of books which I've seen over the years, uh, sometimes if you go in a, especially a large used bookstore and go to the religious section, uh, you may very well find a set of the Interpreter's Bible. And I've always seen them, but I've never really looked at them, and I've never particularly cared to look at them, because you can't see this, but they're published by Abington Press. All those books are published by Abington Press in 1953. And Abington Press is a... Um, a publishing arm of the United Methodist Church. Now, I realize you can be United Methodist, and there's some good United Methodist churches. I've known some over the years, and you can be a Christian in the United Methodist Church. But by and large, the Wesleys kind of were hijacked as to their vision of holiness and salvation, and the United Methodist Church is not what it was. And so, I've never really thought much of those books, but one day Debbie Webb showed up at my door and she said, I found these books at, I don't know, like a, rum, uh, a used book or a thrift store or something. She wanted to know if I was interested. And I'm like, sure, I'll take them. I mean, she's given them to me. She bought them for a couple bucks. I got them, and I've read them from time to time. And I'm amazed at how biblical they are. Just amazed. So according to the Interpreter's Bible from the United Methodist Church in 1953, it goes like this. The word therefore is a humble word, a mere adverb in conjunction, but few words in the Bible are more important. The whole difference between Christianity and every other religion which the world has ever known is symbolized in this single word. Our author, with the word therefore, turns to exhortation, to Christian ethics. But he did not begin with the moral demands of the Christian life. He is, I could say, he has already devoted three chapters to a memorial of God's acts, God's drama of salvation. Only after the story of grace has been told, by grace you have been saved, does he venture to voice the obligations of response. Wow! Now, typically if a if uh, any church is part of this umbrella called the United Church of whatever, they tend to be in the more liberal camp. It's not always the case. I don't mean to paint too broadly, but typically that is the case. So that typically a united group of churches believes that whatever your tradition of faith is, God will recognize it and you will be, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God because you were a person of faith. But according to this writer... Christianity is distinct from every other religion that the world has ever offered. It's because it's a salvation by grace with a gospel that centers on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are good words, but this guy's not done. He goes on to say, Christianity has no monopoly on ethical teachings or moral ideas. In other words, Hindus have ethical ideas. Uh, Muslims have ethical ideas, and in many respects, they can be good. They can be right. They want to do these good things. So Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on goodness or virtue. Christian ethics, however, differs radically 
in the motives which it calls into play. God's saving actions precede God's demands. This is what theologians call provenient grace, which is actually a coin credited originally to Augustine, St. Augustine. Different people mean different things by provenient grace, but what Augustine meant, I think he was right on track. Provenient grace is kind of defined as divine loving kindness going before the divine call to response and obedience. In other words, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 comes before chapters 4, 5, and 6, what you should do. God's never going to tell you this is what you need to do until you receive what he's already done. Even in the Old Testament, the law comes after an act of saving. The Ten Commandments, like the ethical chapters of the New Testament epistles, are introduced by a therefore, implied though not expressed. No sentence of the Ten Commandments is more important than the very introduction. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to give to Israel, it starts like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The ethical command, you shall have no other gods before me, follows an act of redemption, follows an act of salvation. God brought his people out of slavery, out of darkness, to be his own people. Salvation initiates an act of obedience that they are called to. The doctrine of grace, still reading from the United Methodists in 1953, the doctrine of grace in the Bible is hard for men to take. It assaults human pride at its roots. Men do not want to think of themselves as helpless and in need of salvation until they have earned some measure of merit and praise. They want salvation as a prize and not a gift. But God's salvation can never be merited as a prize, unless you're perfect in thought, word, and deed from birth to death. Then it's a prize. But if that's not you, then it can never be merited as a prize. It's received as a gift. The temptation to substitute the therefore of earned merit for the therefore of unearned grace besets all religion. Historic Christianity has yielded to the temptation again and again. True Christian good works are performed because the Christian has been forgiven, not in order to secure forgiveness. Christian ethics is grateful penitence. That's what distinguishes Christianity from the religions of the world. We do because of what Christ has done. Other religions of the world, you do things in order to get, in order to receive the prize, in order to receive the reward, in order to receive what you deserve. I never want to go before God and say, I just want what I deserve. I want to go before God and say, I want what Christ earned on my behalf. And the Methodist got it right. At least this guy did in 1953. And he did it so, so succinctly, 
so wet. He captured so much in what he said. I was really impressed by that. So, in applying the doctrine of the first three chapters to the ethics of chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's first emphasis is church unity. That's how he starts off, church unity. It looks like this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. We don't create it, we maintain it. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we're not going to get to those second three verses until probably next week. Uh, I know not this week. But last week, we talked a little bit about what does it mean to maintain the unity. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. So Paul used words like, I urge you. And he used a term like, be eager about this. Be diligent. Be quick to do it. It's not always easy to be united. It's not always easy to, to live in fellowship and peace with one another, with all of the things that distinguish us from one another. But that's exactly what Paul has called the church to. And we're going to unpack what that means over the next number of weeks. Uh, we're just getting started. But there are at least four components initially what it is required to maintain unity among God's people. It looks like this. There's got to be humility. There's got to be gentleness. Got, there's got to be patience. And there's got to be bearing with one another in love. Now, those four things are actually two couplets. So you've got a with, which introduces a pairing. So unity is maintained with, here's the first pairing, Humility and gentleness. Humility is the attitude. Gentleness is the action that follows the attitude. If you're a humble person, it will, it will demonstrate itself in your gentleness to the people in your life. So one is the attitude, the second is the action. The second pairing is introduced with a second preposition, with. With patience... Bearing with one another in love. Patience is, I'm not sure attitude is the right word, but it's close. Patience is the disposition that results in the action of bearing with one another in love. So there's four things required. Two attitudes or dispositions and two actions. And it all goes together. And by pursuing and cultivating those things in my life, our lives, your life, by cultivating those things, you are maintaining the unity Paul is calling for. We could spend a lot of time on this, and I'm somewhat limited how much I want to do. So I'm going to offer a few thoughts on each one of those four. Let's start with the idea of humility. Humility, C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourself less, which is really an important difference. So humility doesn't mean you're just down on yourself. You belittle yourself. It's not thinking less of yourselves, but rather it's thinking of yourself less. You're just not thinking about yourself. Another 
thought that a commentator wanted to bring out that I thought was, was valid is being humble is not the same as being shy or introverted. Shy and introverted people have the same problem as extroverted, life-of-the-party people when it comes to this idea of humility. Because humility is restraining my desire of entitlement to show kindness to other people. So if I'm, and I'm not, but if I think of myself as an extrovert in the life of the party, humility might mean paying more attention to what other people are doing in the room or how I can relate to them or bring out their story. For an introverted person, I'm somewhere in the middle, so I don't think I'm either, but for an introverted or shy person, humility might mean, you know what, maybe my sense of I want to just be left alone out of my humility, I'm going to open up and engage somebody even though that's kind of out of my comfort zone. That's humility. That's an attitude. That's where it starts. Humility, then, is demonstrated by this characteristic of gentleness, which is the opposite of harshness. Not a harsh person, a gentle person. But then I'm going to throw up a caution there that gentleness doesn't prohibit decisive, firm action when it's called for. It's not if you're a gentle person, you never have to do tough things that are hard. Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. But it didn't prevent him from rebuking his disciples if they needed rebuked. He was gentle, but it didn't keep him from confronting religious authorities that made much of the traditions of men and less of the word of God. It didn't keep him from clearing out the temple when he went to Jerusalem, but he was gentle. Now, it's very easy to excuse no matter what I say or how I treat somebody, it may be harsh, and I can say, well, I'm just being gentle like Jesus. I think we have to, I I would have to say I have to be very careful about that. There is to be a humility that evidences itself in gentleness. I'm going to show you a good example of uh, somebody, actually showed you this on Resurrection Sunday in April, so it's been nine months so if this sounds familiar from nine months ago, you get a star. But it's such, such a good point, I thought it was worth bringing up again. Alicia Brick Collais, the, the gal who wrote Anonymous, which is one of my top ten favorite books probably that I've ever read. But she was an atheist, and she also wrote this book, Finding an Unseen God, because as a child growing up, she was atheist, and she discovered the God of Scripture. And she kind of tells the story, it's just a couple short paragraphs, it goes like this. As a former atheist, I now cringe when I hear someone challenge a theist, somebody who believes in God, to bring forth concrete, irrefutable evidence that God or gods exist. Yes, I remember that the challenge was effective in a debate, but winning a debate lost its appeal to me long ago. In other words, when she was an atheist, she would, she would engage in these debates and she would challenge Christians, prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt God even exists. And she would take just great pride in that Christians could not do that to her satisfaction. And then she became a Christian. But she kept those same, uh, that same harshness as a Christian, as a debater. So she goes on to say... A Muslim man helped me see the futility of winning, that is, winning a debate, winning an argument. We struck up a conversation in a library foyer my senior year in college. 
I do not remember how the discussion began, but soon we were talking about our respective religions, and I shifted into debate gear. After an extended pause, following a strategic point that I had made, this man's eyes became moist. In a strong but wounded voice, he said, I thought that the followers of Jesus were supposed to love people. Then he turned and walked away. I never saw him again. His eyes still haunt me. She was right. She, was, she knew the gospel. She knew the truth. She knew what God's word said. But she treated a man not with, harsh, not with gentleness and humility, but with harshness. And she would say, reflecting back on that episode, it haunts her. See, Christians, we can, we can win some debate forums, right? I mean, if we want to throw ourselves out there on social media, we're right. Our side wins. If the Bible is the word of God, if it's communicating what in fact is true, we can win the argument. But if we do it in such a way that we lack humility and gentleness, I'm not sure we've really won. So those are the first two characteristics. The third characteristics characteristic is patience, which is the opposite of agitation and annoyance and anxiousness. Rather than being agitated and annoyed by people and circumstances and situations and, and idiosyncrasies, rather than that, patience requires surrendering my own timeline and agenda. It doesn't have to be all about me, which is part of the aspect of humility. Then I can be patient with the way people are different. Sometimes they're not where I'm at on something. Uh, some, you know, their background is different. Their, their education is different. There's so many differences, and, and I learn to be patient. I can learn to be patient. That's what Paul's calling us to. And then that evidences itself in bearing with one another in love. And bearing with one another in love is so much more than a command. Just tolerate one another. Paul doesn't say to the church, he doesn't write to the church, look, Christ is coming back one day. In the kingdom of God, we're all going to have to get along. So in the meantime, just put up with it. Just tolerate one another. He doesn't say tolerate one another. He says bear with one another in love. Love is underlying how we bear with one another. It's much more than tolerating. It's bearing with. It's motivated by your love as Christ loved the church. So we've got these four things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I could ask the question, how am I doing? You could ask the question, how are you doing? In those four areas, those two pairings each, four all together, but two little couplets, how are we doing in maintaining the unity that Christ died to bring? And then the follow-up question would be, how are these four virtues even measured? How do we measure our humility and our patience and our gentleness, our bearing with one another in love? How is that measured? I'll tell you how it's not measured. It's not measured by comparing yourself to somebody else and thinking, well, compared to them, I'm a lot more gentle than they are, so it could be worse. Uh, it's, not, it's not by asking your friends in and of themselves, well, what do you think? Do you consider me gentle or not? If you're not, they're like, well, I'm not going to tell you you're not gentle because I know, you know you're not going to take that well and you're going to be not harsh with me, so, oh, no, you're not that bad. I mean, you're pretty... I mean, that's not where it comes... How do we measure where we're at on what 
what Paul's saying. Here's the first thing on the board for you to do now that you know what God has done. How do we measure it? I'm going to suggest two, not superficial, two obvious ways, but then a, a, a much more interesting way yet. The first two obvious ways is Paul says he describes himself as a prisoner. He doesn't have to do that. He's already told us he's a prisoner. Paul could have said, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. But he throws in a prisoner. I think he's suggesting your circumstances don't get you off the hook. I think he's suggesting, look, it was just a bad day. I mean, if people hadn't treated me the way they treated me, if those things hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been as harsh as I was. I would have said things a little differently. Paul's like, look, I'm a prisoner, and I'm telling you, this is how you maintain unity. You're not at the hook, even if you're a prisoner. I think that's the first thing to consider. Secondly, he uses the word all. All humility and gentleness. So let's say you're sizing up the room and you're like, well, compared to everybody else I can lay my eyes on in this church, I'm more humble than they are. And I'm more gentle besides. But then you can still ask, well, so do you, are you like the epitome of it? Are you like all hum humble, all gentle? I mean, my pastor, my mentor, and I've told this story before, but there's some new people here that have never heard it. But my pastor, Marv Wiseman, back in Ohio, my mentor, you know, he, he told the story, you know, that there was a, uh, a guy that, a pastor was preaching on this, and a guy came up after the service and said, Pastor, I want you to know, like, you know, I haven't sinned in 20 years. And the pastor's like, like I will say, I haven't sinned, I'm so humble, I'm gentle, I, not in 20 years have I sinned. And the pastor's like, you haven't sinned in 20 years? And the guy's like, that's right, it's been 20 years since the last time I exhibited something that wasn't entirely Christ-like. And the pastor said, well, you must, that, my, 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 you must be really proud of that. And he's like, you bet I am. <laughs> and he started over. <laughs> but there's a better way to measure how we're doing in those four areas, and it has to do with that idea of walking in a manner worthy. It has everything to do with that word worthy because it is such a fascinating word. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time before we celebrate the Lord's Supper on that word worthy. And because there's so much more than I could possibly get to, I may carry over some more of that, how the word worthy is used in scripture. Uh, maybe even next week, we'll see how it goes. It looks like this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If we translate that Greek word straight over into English, it looks like the word axios. That's how you would take the Greek letters, put them, trans, uh, convert them to English letters. That's the word that Paul uses, a manner worthy. We have an English word that comes from that word. So maybe you recognize, like, that looks strangely familiar, and you would be right, because we have a word in English that's called an axiom. It comes directly from this word axios, which is translated worthy in the New Testament. If I look up in my, and I did, my big unabridged dictionary in my office, an axiom is defined, the top two definitions, because there's usually these nuances of definition, especially in an unabridged dictionary, but an axiom is a self-evident truth. It is a universally accepted principle or rule. So that if I take that, 
the, an English definition of an axiom and apply it to the worthiness that we're talking about, I would say an axiom is inarguably worthy. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some, you know, bonehead that's going to argue, you know, you say black, I say white. I mean, somebody will argue anything, but in any reasonable circle or sphere, there are certain things that are universally accepted. Uh, those are axioms. They are self-evident. You don't have to argue for them. You argue from them. So that's the first nuance behind this idea of worthy. Secondly, the Greek, word, the Greek root for the word worthy is, is uh, worth associated with weight. So we're talking about something that's plain, it's evident, it's obvious. It's also a worth associated with weight. And, and it literally is used in a scale. So uh, something that balances a scale so that I think I've got... It's bringing the scales into balance. Something is worthy. If I've got a, a large scale set up here and, and I've got, I don't know, a, a five-pound weight on this side... I'm not going to collect feathers to balance that scale. It's, it's just not going to, it's not worthy. It's not worthy. So this idea of worthiness is something that brings things into balance. Uh, it's, it's a proper counterpart. Um, in commerce, we do this all the time. Uh, you will go to the store and you will pull out your wallet or your purse or whatever the case may be or reach in your pocket. You'll pull out a certain amount of dollars and is that worthy to purchase that item you want. Or if you're going to go out to eat, you, you know, have got your heart set on Hickory River Barbecue. And if you're going to go to Hickory River Barbecue, you've got to have so much money to get that barbecue. It's got to be balanced. Because if I say, look, I've got two bucks. Uh, I want to, you know, whatever, whatever this meal. And they're like, that's not worthy. You need more than two bucks. That's the, you haven't balanced the equation there. Or if they say, uh, we'll give you a pulled pork sandwich with two sides for 50, I would say, no, wait a second, that's not worthy. My 50 bucks is worth more than your uh, pulled pork sandwich with two sides. So there's got to be an equality there. That's what's behind this word. So, worthy depicts a relationship or a correspondence between two entities. It's a relationship between two different things. Um, that's how we purchase everything that we purchase. If I go down to Rich's store, you know, uh, in spring, and I'm like, I need a new tree. I took down a tree last year in my front yard, and he's selling these trees. And I'm like, I'll give you five bucks for that tree. And he's like, no. You know, there's a price tag on the tree. You've got to spend so much to get the tree. And I'm like, well, I, it's only worth five bucks to me. And Rich is like, well, it's worth a lot more than five bucks to me. And so we haven't, we haven't transacted anything because our ideas of worth are different. So that's what's behind this word. Now, here's a guy, that's Tyson Fury. He's a heavyweight boxer. If I step into the ring with Tyson Fury, they're not going to say, now, there's a worthy opponent. I haven't balanced the scales. He's like six, I don't know, he's like six, 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 seven, three hundred 300 pounds or so. That fight would be over so quick, I would dive so fast, but if I got a million dollars, I would probably dive before, you know, you just pretend, you just swing in the air, I'll fall right, I'll be out, I'll be out cold. 
But in, in boxing, or, or in most sports, and I don't follow boxing, so I don't know that much about it, but you're, what they look for is a worthy opponent. Somebody who equals the scale that you're going to watch because you're not sure what the outcome's going to be. It's a worthy opponent. That's how the word worthy is used. It depicts a relationship or a correspondence between two entities. The Greek word is used 54 times in the New Testament, either as an adverb, an adjective, or a verb. You know, it's like nuance of, of we have English, you know, verbs, adverbs, nouns, they, and the, there can be a different ending. It's the same word. So it's 54 times in the New Testament. I think all 54 are fascinating, describing this relationship. I'm going to show you two easy examples, and then we'll, because I gotta, I'm running out of time, I've got to pull it back, and we'll go look at it in Ephesians, and then we'll translate it over to the Lord's Supper. So in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist from the New King James. Then John the baptizer said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So the question would be, what is the worthy relationship? John says, bear fruits worthy. What's the relationship? What scale needs to be balanced here in, what, in the way John uses the word worthy? And the answer is, you've got bearing fruits and repentance. Now, the backstory on repentance is John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you want entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you need to repent. Well, if repent means say a sinner's prayer, if repent means just, just give uh, lip service to something, that's easy, easily, easily done. But John says, if we're going to balance this equation, you've got to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is more than a word that falls off your tongue. It needs to be demonstrated by the works that you live, that you, that you show. That's the equation that John is looking for here. Second example, this is at the end of Luke's gospel. This Jesus is on trial with Pilate. It looks like this. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man, Jesus, as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Look, nothing worthy, here it's translated deserving, nothing worthy of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. What's the relationship between in that use of the word worthy? Well, here the relationship is between death, a certain penalty, and something that is done that deserves death. Because the, we call it the scales of justice need to be balanced. If somebody um, trespasses across your yard, you don't shoot him to death. That, he's not worthy of death because he cut across your yard. But there are certain crimes that are done that are worthy of death according to Scripture. So Pilate's examined Jesus. They're calling for death. They want Jesus killed. And Jesus, or Pilate's saying, look, I've examined him. I can't find that he's done anything worthy of death. The scales won't be balanced. You're asking me to do worse to him than what he deserves. And then Pilate says, I'm going to punish him and release him. Guess what? He doesn't deserve the punishment either. 
the scales still aren't balanced. That's how the word worthy is used. You're trying to balance something, uh, something that's evident, something that's plain. It's inarguably the right thing to do. That's how the word is used. Now let's take it back to Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. What is being balanced? What is being balanced when he says it, you need to walk worthy? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, the relationship is between your walking and your calling. To walk worthy is to walk in light of your calling. You've balanced the equation. There's only one way to walk if you understand those first three chapters of Ephesians. If you as a Christian, if I as a Christian think that doesn't apply to me in Scripture, I don't have to do that, I've got my rights, I haven't read the first three chapters because there's only one right response in how I should walk. I could put it like this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live chapters 4 to 6 in a manner worthy of the calling of chapters 1 to 3. Because those first three chapters are all about what we were called to. Who we were called by and what we were called to. Now, the only way to balance that equation is now you walk worthy. You walk in humility and gentleness and patience, forbearing with one another. That's what it means to walk worthy. What are your comments and questions? We will always fall short. We will never be outside of grace. Even grace, having been saved by grace, we will never stop needing grace. So you're right to be concerned. Like, wait a minute, are we saying that at some point we actually deserve it? You know, no. But that's, that's the language Paul's using. So Paul's comfortable using the language. I want to be comfortable using it. We, we, we will never balance the scale like, now I have earned the grace that God's... No, he's not saying that. But he's saying there's only one way to put stuff on the other side of the scale. It's got to look like this. Uh, but even that's because God's Spirit is working. Let me move on. The Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we are talking about what's talked about in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, that Christ is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and dominion and majesty. He's worthy because he shed his blood. He fulfilled his Father's plan. All that the Son accomplished, he is worthy to receive all that. When Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do in just a moment, if you're a Christian... Part of what you're doing is you're celebrating and you're proclaiming he's worthy. He's worthy to take all the holiness of God, which demands that no sinner appear in his sight. He's worthy to bear our sin and take it away so that we can be called sons and daughters of the living God. He's worthy. He's, done, he's balanced the equation. Justice is satisfied. And grace triumphs over over. Over justice, according to what James says, mercy triumphs over justice. Because mercy calls for better things than the law which condemns us. We're proclaiming the worthiness of the Lamb slain before the creation of the world. That's what Christians do when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's, we're going to sing, uh, Is He Worthy? Uh, Andrew Peterson, and then you can have a seat.
Nancy and I will serve this side, and then the Keatons will serve that side. If you're going to participate, if you'll step out the center aisle and then go back down the side aisle. Let's everybody stand as he worthy.